of the Epistle to Hebrews tonight. We finish this wonderful letter and we begin with bowing our heads in prayer. Father, we have come to the end of an epistolary journey which is in truth but the beginning of understanding the wealth of the revelation that is in you and in your Son and in the Spirit who has opened our hearts and our minds to perceive the heights and lengths and depth and breadth of the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Now as we read this last chapter of this wonderful servant of yours, we pray that again you help us to lift up our hearts even as we bow down our heads, understanding the unworthiness and the humility in which we stand before your throne, and claiming nothing else but the grace of the Lord Jesus, for it is only in that grace that we can stand. We bless you for him, particularly as we welcome him again in our liturgical year, through his wonderfully glorious advent. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now we want to begin again by looking at this uh, chapter in terms of its structure. And there are actually uh, two larger units here. Let's see if you can uh, ferret them out Beginning at verse 2 and comparing verse 2 with verse 16. <clears throat> See if you can find a parallel pattern there. Do not neglect. <clears throat> Notice that that phrase is duplicated in both of those verses. And so we have the first of a significant frame or bracketing device between verses 2 and 16. Then there are some smaller units inside, verse 3 and verse 7. That shouldn't be too difficult for you to see. Remember, it's duplicated there. Verse 10 and 16 may be a little more challenging, partially because of the variation in translation that there may be there. I don't know what you have in verse 10. Those of you that do not have the New American Standard. Altar, all right. Then it is the same as in the NASB. Then in verse 16, what would compare to altar? Sacrifices. Sacrifices, yes. And in fact, in the Greek, the words are cognates, so they are related. So that's a kind of bracketing device around verses 10 to 16, which sandwiches 
in verse 12, the name Jesus. Jesus is placed in between those two elements of what we might call worship. Now, in verse 17 and in verse 24, we find a phrase that is once again duplicated, which is the frame for this second larger unit of this last chapter. Verse 17 and verse 24. And the pronoun that modifies them, your Your leaders, is duplicated in both of those verses. All right, now, in addition, you'll notice that we also have a pattern in verses 17 and 18 that is matched in verses 23 and 24. It's a pattern that has to do with the verbs. In fact, the very first word of each of those verses. What's the first word in verse 17? Anyone? Obey. Obey, and what kind of a word is that? Command. It's a command. So what part of speech is it? It is an imperative. Very good. What about verse 18? Pray. What part of speech? It is an imperative again. Okay. Verse 23. Take notice. What part of speech? An imperative. Or no. Some of your versions may have no that. And verse 24. And part of speech? Imperative. Notice what we have. We have a sequence of initial imperatives in 17 and 18. We also have initial imperatives in 23 and 24. And in uh, further delimitation, these imperatives are alongside a section which deals with your leaders. Now inside of this unit, you'll notice in verse 19, and I've given you the little, uh, what's called the enclitic, in uh, Greek, the de, that's pronounced like a D-E, that little squiggle. It's a post-positive, but it's always translated first, so it would be translated but or and or now, as the case, the context may be. But the word that follows it in verse 19 is parallel to a word that precedes it in verse 22. It's not that way in your English version, but can you find a word that is the same in 19 as it is in 22? No. Urge. Urge. So in verse 19, we have the post-positive Greek particle de plus the word urge. But in verse 22, he reverses it. In other words, he does a chiastic frame. He puts urge first and puts the post-positive de second. 
So he's framing this smaller unit, which includes verses 20 and 21. What then do we find in 20 and 21? We find the names of our Savior, Jesus our Lord in 20 and Jesus Christ in 21. Now, I want to begin with this second frame. You notice the symmetry of it. We pointed out the duplicate imperatives at the beginning, which kind of uh, emphasize your leaders, and the duplicate imperatives at the end of the unit in 23 and 24, which also uh, conclude the emphasis upon your leaders. And in between, we have a very neatly, chiastically framed sandwich around the names of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some scholars who have argued that this section, particularly verses 22 through 25, is an addendum. By that, they mean that it was not written by the original author of the epistle. It was added by an amanuensis or a secretary or perhaps even a courier when the letter was sent out or dispatched. So according to these scholars, these verses, particularly 22 to 25, are not part of the original letter. Now, as you look at that argument or consider that argument, why do you think, besides the fact that uh, this is an argument which breaks up the integrity of the epistle and perhaps something you would never even have thought of uh, because it wouldn't have occurred to you, and of course this is a, uh, an opinion of many liberals uh, who are uh, you know, experts at cutting up the Bible and reorganize, reorganizing and telling you what's really there and what's really not there. But in any event, can you, uh, can you suggest why there may be some logic to the suggestion that verse 22 to 25 is in fact an addendum and the letter ends at verse 21? Yes, there is an amen at the end of verse 21. And so some of these scholars will point to the fact that the amen seems to close the letter. And therefore, these four verses, 22 to 25, are an afterthought or an an additional uh, 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 set of verses uh, which did not uh, really end the letter, it just extended it after it was properly ended. Now, uh, my response to that is the symmetry that you've seen in the outline between 17 and 24. If we cut this letter off at verse 21, you will destroy the parallel symmetry which he has established with the four imperatives and the reverse chiasm in verse 19 and 22. We can't do that without destroying the artistry of this very gifted Greek writer. We have noted over and over again in the course of these discussions about this epistle 
that this is a remarkable literary and rhetorical piece of writing. He has deliberately used patterns and frames and brackets and hook devices and symmetry and redemptive historical recapitulation, and he has done it with marvelous skill. You're seeing it here at the end of the epistle as we have seen it throughout the epistle, and therefore to suggest that 22 to 25 does not belong to the integrity of the epistle is to destroy the artistry that he has woven into the letter. In other words, here's a place where this structural work that we are doing, or at least these structural patterns that we're unfolding, here's a case where we hold the integrity or the wholeness of the epistle together, and we do so on the basis of the patterns, the grammatical patterns and the parallel and symmetrical patterns which are there. We have always suggested that symmetry and duplication is unto theological understanding. And so now that we are certain that uh, this uh, ending does genuinely belong to the letter and belongs to it in its integrity, then let's ask another question about verse 24. As you look at verse 24... What do you notice about those words? Well, I'm curious about Italy. (laughs) Okay. We'll come to uh, satisfy your curiosity, I trust, Kay. What else do you see about the words of the verse? Well, maybe this doesn't mean anything, but it seems that he knows these people. I think that is true. We're looking for patterns. He uses all. In fact, he uses all three times because he uses it in verse 25. He uses the rule of threes. But what about verse 24? No, go ahead, Pete. Greet. Greet. He uses the word greet twice. So once again, he's using duplicate patterns. He's using symmetrical patterns. He greets the leaders, and those from Italy greet the readers as well. So there's a double greeting here at the end. Why is he doing this? Is he being polite? Well, Kay is wondering about from Italy, that phrase that appears at the end of this uh, 24th verse, from Italy. Are these folks in Italy? Or what do you gather from that phrase? From Italy, those from Italy. Where the letter was written from. So the author is writing in Italy, and those from Italy greet you.
Yes, and, and if they were people that had to leave Italy, they would then be what? They would be Hebrews, wouldn't they? They would be sojourners. They would be pilgrims. So that from Italy would be consonant. In other words, he's using the preposition to indicate that they are out of Italy, that they are from Italy, that they are sojourners beyond Italy, that they are strangers from Italy, that they are pilgrims, even as he and the other readers of this epistle are pilgrims. <clears throat> so that he's using this term, and actually it's used in the book of Acts the same way, that those who have come out of Italy. So, <clears throat> There is a band of pilgrims around this author, some of whom are from Italy. And those from Italy greet you. So where do you think the letter is going? To Italy. Those from Italy greet you, you who are back in Italy. All right, so we pilgrims from Italy who have left Italy greet you who are back in Italy. In other words, he wouldn't name the Italians or those from Italy unless there was some recognition or reception at the other end of the uh, reading of the letter. All right, now we've uh, noted that uh, this uh, pilgrim idea here in verse 24 matches one of the major motifs of uh, this epistle. Is there anywhere else in this 13th chapter that we have this pilgrim idea? Verse 14 is a pilgrimage motif, isn't it? We have no continuing or lasting city here. We are seeking a city which is to come. That's a pilgrimage motif. Notice also verses 11, 12, and 13, where we're talking about moving outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the camp Again, and why are we moving outside the gate or outside the camp? Because in verse 13, we are bearing the reproach of Christ. What was the reproach that Christ bore outside the camp or outside the gate? That was his crucifixion. His crucifixion. What kind of if, what, what kind of person got crucified? Okay, a criminal. What other kind of person got crucified? All you fans of Spartacus. Well, Christians, I know did. Yeah, Christians did. 
I heard some another rebels and warriors. Pardon? Warriors against the state or rebels. That's true, but I'm thinking of uh, outside the camp as a reproach. All you Spartacus fans and those Spartacus. Sorry, do you slaves? Spartacus, slaves who rebelled. Slaves, exactly. Slaves, the lowest scum of society. They were uh, worthy of crucifixion because they were regarded as uh, the lowest of low. So criminals and slaves in that uh, style, that's the reproach that Christ bears. He not only bears the agony of the cross, he bears the reproach of being regarded as a criminal, as a uh, slave of sin himself. All right, now, here... Our author is asking us to to identify with him, which means that we are to go outside the camp as he did, regarding ourselves as worthless as he is. Uh, We ourselves the object of scorn, or even worse, as Kay suggested, Christians were crucified. That is true, particularly in uh, Nero's uh, uh, post-fire frenzy, <clears throat> uh, Christians' objects of persecution, even death. Is that true in this community, the community that's receiving this letter? Have they been persecuted unto death? No, they have not. How do you know, Robert? Oh, because we covered it. Because <laughs> it's in the book, isn't it? Does anyone remember where it is to help Robert out? It's in chapter 12. What verse, Marge? All right, you can look. <laughs> you turn one chapter back. Four. Verse 4 is correct. You've not set suffered unto blood. All right, so the reproach that is being born or being uh, offered uh, to this community which reflects Christ is a reproach that hasn't ended up yet in uh, shedding of blood. But nonetheless, they are being regarded as worthless by their contemporaries or peers. They're being regarded as an object of scorn. They are being persecuted. They're not being persecuted unto death yet. Now, is there anyone in particular... Is there anyone in particular who is bearing this reproach? Outside of Christ. Verse 23. Who's mentioned in verse 23? Christina? Timothy is mentioned in verse 23. What has happened to Timothy? Christina? He was in prison. He was in prison. Correct. How did he get put in prison? You said in Italy? Okay. When would he have been in prison in Italy? You're doing well. Um, I don't know if this is on the 
that's the same time Paul is in prison. Same time Paul is in prison, yes. And the easiest place to look at that is to just turn to the epistle before Hebrews, to turn to Philemon. And if you take a look at Philemon, first verse, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, it is likely that Paul is indicating that Timothy is in prison with him. This is written from prison in Rome. It is slightly possible that Paul is only mentioning that Timothy is also together with him. If you go back to Acts chapter 28, the last verses of Acts 28 indicate that Paul was able to stay in his own rented apartment, so to speak, for two years. And he was free to preach and receive visitors. And the prison epistles, particularly Philippians and Colossians, that mentioned Timothy being present with Paul, uh, quite possibly mean that Timothy was able to come and go while Paul was uh, under house arrest. Uh, But on the other hand, it is also possible that Timothy was uh, co-arrested. He was equally arrested with Paul. So we have to leave it a little bit ambiguous. Philemon is probably the one, Philemon 1 is probably the passage of the strongest indication that he may have been in prison with Paul. But is that what's being referred to here in Hebrews 13.24, or 23 rather? Is this Timothy in prison with Paul? Or associated with Paul in prison? No, that's not likely. So how does Timothy become imprisoned here in Hebrews? Well, if we go back to chapter 10 and verse 34, you'll notice we had these these three verses, 32 to 34, that express the crisis or the tension or the oppression that has come to this community of Hebrews and some of them have been placed in jail. Some of them have been imprisoned because of their Christian faith and it's quite possible that Timothy was also caught up in that uh, that pattern of uh, imprisonment. Well, if it's not Timothy in prison with Paul in Rome, in Italy, because those from Italy are somewhere away from Italy, then what is the venue of this epistle? What is the location from which this epistle was written? If it is not written from Rome, because he wouldn't say those out of Rome, out of Italy, greet you back there in Italy... So he must be uh, remote from Italy. He's out of Italy. He's not in Italy as he writes this letter. Where then does it come from? Well, we ask the question of where is Timothy? We ask the question of what is Timothy's venue? If Timothy is no longer uh, beside Paul in Rome or in Italy, where is Timothy? Where did Paul leave him? He left him in Ephesus. 
left him in Ephesus, as First Timothy 1 verse 3 tells you, also Acts 18 verse 19. Timothy seems to have been <clears throat> a man who was born and raised in Asia Minor. Paul picks him up on his second missionary journey outside of Derby and Lystra, and quite possibly he even was from Ephesus itself. Nonetheless, uh, that's where we find Timothy in the pastoral epistles, which are after Paul's first imprisonment and before Paul's execution. And Timothy uh, is Paul's co-laborer during that probably fourth missionary journey of the apostle that conceivably took him all the way to Spain. Uh, We're not absolutely sure about that, but it is probable. In any event, uh, Timothy uh, has survived Paul's execution and beheading probably around 68 A.D., and uh, he has been arrested himself, perhaps along with other members of this community, which suggests that this community is also in that venue of Asia Minor. And so if they are in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, a passage or a comment, those from Italy greet you, would be an extension of the greetings that were common to the circle of Timothy, a circle that would remember him in Italy, would remember him in Rome, which also suggests that this letter is destined for Christians in Italy, in Rome, because they would recognize the name Timothy in verse 23. It would resonate with them. They would remember, oh, well, he was the one that was here when Paul was here. And when some of these Christians who have gone to Asia Minor from Italy heard the gospel from those that heard Christ, possibly uh, Peter and Mark. All right. Some of this is speculation, and yet uh, most of it makes uh, decent sense so that we can make some suggestions about where this letter came from and where it was going and who these Hebrews are. These Hebrews are Gentile converts, and they are Hebrews of the end of the age. They are pilgrims of these last days. That's the way the epistle begins in chapter 1, verse 2. All right, now, going back to verse 2, of this 13th chapter. And we find another pilgrim motif. What's the pilgrim motif there in verse 2? It talks about hospitality to strangers. hospitality to strangers. In fact, the Greek word that is used here is love of strangers. It's philoxenias. And it's related to the word in verse 1. What do you think the Greek word is for love of the brethren? Not you, Pete. Loretta, what do you think the Greek word is for love of the brethren? 
or brotherly love. Is that agape? No, that's just love. Brotherly love. City of brotherly love. Oh, you're too much a Westerner. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. What does Philadelphia? Why did William Penn call it Philadelphia? Yes, because it was the city of brotherly love, as he hoped <coughs> the Quaker in the Quaker vision it would be. <coughs> and it comes directly from the Greek <coughs> Philadelphia, love of the brethren. So here we have in these two verses two philo or philo verbs which are discussing once again the dominant motif of this epistle because obviously <coughs> pilgrimage and sojourn brings hospitality from those that love the brethren and are <coughs> lovers of strangers the two <coughs> go together they reinforce one another and that's the reason he sticks them back to back in verses 1 and 2 but that second verse is not well translated in any version after 1611. How do you do better than they entertained angels unawares? You can't improve on that. You can only make it look worse. They, they entertained angels without knowing it. No, 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 no. That just does not capture the flavor of it. And so there are reasons to still lift up the King James, particularly in terms of idiom and uh, mastery of expression. And in this case, it beats all the other versions hollow. All right. Now, referring to what event those who entertained angels unaware. Terry? Christina? Uh, I'm sorry, I was writing. Who entertained angels unaware? What's he referring to? Or is he just thinking about angels visiting these people in Asia Minor, like Timothy? Loretta? Have you entertained any angels unaware lately? Lisa? Ben? Abraham. Yes, Abraham. He's referring to the story of Abraham and the three strangers that came to Abraham in Genesis 18. And what were they coming to do, Ben? They came to, uh, ultimately, they came to announce the, uh, the fact that Sarah would have a son. Okay, what else? Sodom and Gomorrah, okay. All right, and one of those persons was called March? Earth. Back to you, Ben. The angel of the Lord. And who's the angel of the Lord, Ben? Pre incarnate Son of God, yes. All right. So that angelic visitation to Abraham in Genesis 18 and 19 is a very significant uh, turning point in his own life uh, because God himself appears to him in the person of an angel. second person of the Godhead takes a form before he's born in Bethlehem in the flesh. 
and he's called the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord is called the Lord, called God in that context. And we have no other, we have no other solution to explaining the meaning of that language except to say, well, that's God the Son come to manifest himself before the fullness of the time. All right, so this incident is in the mind of our writer, who in chapter 11 has had Abraham in his mind richly and voluminously, and consequently we're not surprised that his mind goes back to Abraham, who is the protological Hebrew, the stranger, the first sojourner in the history of redemption. That is the first one to be so designated, though in chapter 11 he also includes those before Abraham like Abel, Enoch, and Noah in that paradigm. Well, what about verse 3? We're talking about pilgrim motif, we're talking about sojourner motif, we're talking about being strangers and exiles, and you show hospitality to them and you show brotherly love to them. What about verse 3? How are these prisoners prisoners? Who are these prisoners? Probably Christians. How'd they get there? Persecuted. 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 How do you know? You don't. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. How do you know? All right, let's do it again, fans. We did this earlier tonight. Back to chapter 10. Verse 34. Who did we already say fell afoul of this? Timothy. But here in chapter 13, there are others. These prisoners who have been thrown in jail because of persecution or tribulation. In other words, once again, we're reminded by the language here in 13.3 that this community has experienced trouble, trial, tribulation, suffering, persecution, imprisonment. And so he says to remember the prisoners, which, of course, a fellow sojourner would do. If they were a part of your group, you would remember them in prison. You would remember that they are an imprisoned sojourner, though you are a sojourner who may be at liberty. But he goes further, doesn't he? He goes further than say, remember that they're sojourners. They're in the body. Mm. True. True. But what does he ask them to do? What's it mean? Remember them as though in prison with them. What kind of language is that? That's identification language. That's more than sojourn or pilgrim language. That's language of identifying with them taking upon yourself the same identity that they have, 
remembering them in such a way that you yourself imagine yourself bound along with them. So intimate is the bond between you and them that it is as though you are imprisoned beside them. All right, now, it's not only prisoners. It's not only those who have been incarcerated. It's also others. Ill-treated. What have they been, how have they been ill-treated? We go back to chapter 10 again. You must remember that 1032 to 34 is crucial to the social ethos and the cultural clash that this group has faced. Crucial to this epistle. It's one of the reasons he talks about them as pilgrims, Hebrews. How they've been ill-treated. Verse 32, they have endured conflict of sufferings. They have been made a public spectacle through reproach and tribulation. They have suffered seizure and loss of their property. What does it mean to be made a public spectacle? Put in stocks. Put in stocks. Put in stocks? No, I don't think so. Ridiculed. Ridiculed. Well, not in an old newspaper, but they've been put on parade. They've been put on parade and ridicule and scorned as those who don't agree with the program of the city or the state or the culture or whatever. And particularly that reproach probably would be lodged against them when they did not participate in the Saturnalia or in the feasts that honored the gods. They stood apart from that, then they would be scorned and ridiculed, perhaps even isolated from the crowd. So this perhaps even placed outside the city wall and reproached or scorned or mocked. All right, so it's not just the uh, uh, being locked away as prisoners here. It's also this public shame that's being hurled at them. And shame in ancient culture is as severe a reproach as shame in modern tribal culture. Shame and honor or shame and dishonor. These are powerful, uh, powerful emotions and powerful uh, images. So this community is being uh, being shamed and dishonored, but they are being honored and exalted for the sake of Christ. All right, well, you catch the pattern here. We've not moved away from the Hebrew or pilgrim motif, though we're talking about brotherly love, though we're talking about love of strangers, that is, showing them kindness and hospitality, though we're talking about uh, prisoners and identifying with them, though we're talking about bearing with those that have been ill-treated in the body, because we, too, are identified with the body in terms of its potential suffering. But we come to verses 4 and 5, and it looks as if we leave our pilgrimage motif behind. Here he talks about the honor of marriage. 
Now, this is certainly a endorsement or an appeal to the community of Christians to whom he is writing. The marriage bed is to be honored, not adulterated, not defiled, not perverted, and the act of marital intercourse is what he describes as the marriage bed. Now, we know that he's describing the marital act in that phrase, the marriage bed be undefiled, because of the vocabulary that he uses after that phrase. He uses the Greek word pornos and moikos, fornicator and adulterer. He's obviously talking about acts of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Now, pornos is intercourse which is non-marital. Yes, it's outside of marriage, but it's non-marital sexual intercourse. And it degrades. It is defiled. Adultery is the act of sexual intercourse outside of marriage extramaritally. So fornication or pornos, from which we get pornography, and moikos, which means to break the bond, break the union. Those two words are talking about that which goes on outside of marriage. The one pornos, fornication, is non-marital sexual intercourse, and the other, which is adultery, Moikos, that which breaks the bond, is extramarital sexual intercourse. And God will judge both. How severely will God judge non-marital sexual intercourse? Such a person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, you mean, Denison, that there is no fornicator in heaven? There is no unrepentant or unregenerate fornicator in heaven. For all impenitent fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, Denison, you're just a nasty bigot. You're a mean Unmulticultured, tolerant person. You're intolerant. No, I just quoted the Apostle Paul. I didn't quote myself at all. I just quoted the scriptures. I quoted Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Fornicators and adulterers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's right there as plain as the words on the text. No one who dies an impenitent and unforgiven fornicator or adulterer will go into the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Bible says. Revelation 22.15 puts them outside the city of God. The judgment that they will receive is an eternal judgment of God's fury 
of consuming fire. Remember where Dante has the adulterers on the level of hell? Do you remember how he portrays them? Portrays them in all their naked libido, reaching, 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 and never touching in eternal flames. That's probably too good, but it is very graphic, and it captures the essence of what this sin amounts to. Do you see what God made in the beginning? Perverted, depraved, abused. What God made in the beginning. Unrepentant, will not turn from it. A fearful weight of judgment. Do not dare God to that. Flee immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it like the plague. Cut out your eye if you have to. For this sin is a violation of that union which God has made the central mystery of understanding how close one can get to God himself. The ecstasy of that union is the expression of knowing a person, a being in such a way, the passion of that love draws one into the mystery of heaven. How dare you corrupt it, defile it, prostitute it, reduce it to depravity. You are assaulting God Almighty. You are assaulting Christ and his bride. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge with an eternal judgment. And with a temporal judgment. The refusal to honor marriage and the marriage bed has unleashed the sexual revolution of the now notorious 1960s. And with it, the built-in God-ordained consequences. The consequences of defying the sexual order that he has created. STD, sexually transmitted diseases, some of which are incurable. Abortion. Abortion reaching up to millions of human souls. Prostitution. Prostitution, abuse, death, murder, violence, sexual predation. We've got our whole sports world alive with sexual predation. Preying on little children. 
pornographic degradation and exploitation for private and intimate, from the private and intimate to the graphic and voyeuristic. And we're shocked when they go after little children. We're not shocked when they go after one another on the TV screen or on the movie screen. We're so used to it, we're numb. We can't even turn it off. Fornication and adultery are the expression of self-centeredness. Self-gratification. Self-degradation, which concomitantly degrades another person. Demeans another human person to an object. An object of physical Gratification depraves another human person to a thing, a thing for carnal, sensual, egocentric satisfaction. Fornication and adultery are power trip sins. Me having the power over you. Me being able to subjugate and prostitute you. It's all about my power over you. It has nothing to do with love. Nothing whatsoever. I don't care what Hollywood does with it. Now, there is only one place left in our culture where we will hear these words, adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. And these words need to be read in every Christian family from the time the children in that family can understand human language until they leave the nest. They need to understand what it means to be a virgin and to remain so until they are married. And they need to understand why. Not for you to run away from Christian sex education in the home as if you have something you want to hide. There's enough of it in the scripture that you can teach your children very plainly and openly what it is all about without any graphic videos. And you can do it, you can do it for their sanctification. You can do it to draw them into the mystery of the most glorious marital union in all of God's cosmos. And that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Sexual love is beautiful in the bonds of marriage and should be promoted as such in the Christian home and understood by every Christian covenant child as the goal, as that ideal of being conformed to the measure of the mystery of Christ and his bride. There's the sweet expression of this relationship. And so, 
to this community in this very pagan, sexually rampant culture of the first century A.D. And if you think ours is bad, you ought to read some of the primary documents of the first century. They'll turn your stomach. They'll turn your stomach. That's how bad they are. And so there is nothing new under the sun. It's just the graphic visualization of it that is new. It's all over the place. You can't turn your computer on and access your Internet site browsers without being stoned with it. You can't stay away from it. There are all kinds of salacious photos all over the place, even in the so-called reliable Internet sites. You have to keep your eyes in the center of the screen. We have no power over it except to shut it off. And if we cut ourselves off from the Internet, we're going to cut ourselves off from a source of information that is essential to our own edification. And so, with Job, we have to guard our eyes. But in this community that he is writing to, and in the Christian community to which we speak, There is only one place, this is the only place where this message is going to be heard and where it's going to be heard out of the love of Christ for the sexuality of boys and girls and men and women and husbands and wives. We are inviting all in those categories into a wonderfully passionate mystery which can only be experienced between one man and one woman at a time. Until death do they part. And that message is the message of God's beginning and ongoing. They shall cleave to one another and the two shall be one flesh. No other way. That's God's way. You know what happened when the Southern Baptist Convention began to promote its abstinence program in the public schools. You remember what happened. They were laughed off of the campus. You are living in a culture in which the public arena does not want to hear this message. It is habituated to fornication and adultery. It is habituated to it. You've got desperate housewives on TV every week. Predation, uh, sexual predators, female sexual predators. They are icons. We've got professional athletes who are serial adulterers and they get rewarded for it. Their wives even kiss them when they are labeled with Hester Prime's adulterous red letter A. And then they get million dollar contracts beyond that. We're living in a culture which is sated with sexuality and yet a culture which cannot understand the mystery of sexuality. And it doesn't understand it because it refuses to understand Christ. 
and sexuality in Christ Jesus. But this is the only venue in which that message will be communicated, even as it was the only venue when that message was communicated in Hebrews 13, verse 4. That culture didn't want to hear it any more than this culture wants to hear it. But that culture ultimately was turned upside down by the message of Christ, which included the message of pure sexuality, marital fidelity, no fornication, and no adultery. And as people came to Christ, so they came to that understanding of that sexuality, and they put away their prostitutes, they put away their pederasts, they put away all of the filthiness of the flesh. And they became new men and women in Christ Jesus. What did Paul say to the Corinthian church? Some of you were once like this. Some of you sitting out there in that audience in Corinth before me were once like this. You were fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals. But God changed you. The grace of Christ changed you. You were transformed by the regenerating power of a spirit which cleaned up your soul and cleaned up your sexuality and cleaned up your sex life. You were transformed completely. And I still remember the day when I sat across the table from converted lesbians and homosexuals who said, God set me free. It wasn't a dry eye at that table as you listened to the stories of those men and women who have been delivered by Christ. And some of them happily married. Don't underestimate the power of the grace of Christ Jesus. Any of you who know converted adulterers or fornicators know its power. You've seen it. You've seen people whose lives have been completely transformed by the grace of Christ. And it's because their shame has driven them to the cross. And the cross has cleansed them of their shame. Cleansed completely, cleansed wholly, cleansed perfectly, completely removed any stain from their soul and from their record. And said, I do not condemn you. Come unto me, I do not condemn you. Such were some of you once upon a time, but you have put away the deeds of the flesh. And you are now new creatures in Christ Jesus. And that includes the marriage bed. Well, it's time for a break. Now, marriage, fornication, and adultery in verse 4, and then the love of money in verse 5. What is the matter with this guy? 
What is the connection between fornication, adultery, marriage, and the love of money? What's he doing here? Is he just throwing out practical Christianity? No, he's not. There's a common thread here. Marge, you've got a smile on your face. Why have you got that smile on your face? Is that the Cheshire crack? Or is that the, that the smile of all-knowing? It's not a knowing smile. Does your husband have the knowing smile tonight? No, he has no knowing. What is there? Is there a common thread between verse 4 and verse 5? Verse 4 is describing personal selfishness, isn't it? In the sexual arena, personal selfishness. What's verse 5 describing? Personal selfishness, isn't it? Greed, it's called greed. And it doesn't make any difference whether it's Albert Pujols getting a $140 million contract or there's some corporate executive for GE or General Motors. Well, General Motors is a, well, that's a government program, right? I mean, we 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 taxpayers are paying those salaries. <clears throat> the salary of the chairman of the board, or the cor- the CEO, or the president of this corporation will be one million five hundred thousand dollars per year plus stock options, which are worth up to thirty million dollars a year. Now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't know what to do with a million and a half dollars. Oh, but I can figure it out. No, you couldn't either. <laughs> you could spend $40,000 a year, which is basically what it takes to keep a human being alive in this world today. $40,000 a year, and you could a million dollars would last you 25 years, and you wouldn't have even started to tap the interest. Now we're talking about stock options worth another 30 million. We're talking about corporate executives bringing home 40, 50 million dollars a year. I'm a stockholder. I want more dividends. I don't want you padding your pocket with more million. Put that back into R&D. Come on, let's do something better for all mankind with this business and this corporation. It's done padding your pocket. All right, so we've got this obscenity of overcompensation, these obscene salaries, not only in pro football, not only in the halls of Congress, not only in the Senate of the United States, but we've also got this obscenity in the corporate boardroom. So it cuts both ways. And no, I'm not endorsing the 99 percenters either. So please do not accuse me of that. Greed, when it is that type of greed, lavish mansions, houses worth two, three, four million dollars. What do you do with a house worth three, four million dollars? You can't even, you couldn't even clean it by yourself. You'd have to hire a crew. You just find ways to waste your money on more lavish 
you know, exaltation of your own lifestyle. What is this? It's discontent. That's what it is. It's not being content with what God has given you, which is what he's saying here. And that sounds like a pilgrimage motif. It sounds then like this marriage discussion is a pilgrimage motif because you're to be content with the mate that you've been granted and delight in him or her on your sojourn. And you're to be content with what you've been given in terms of financial wherewithal because that's what a sojourner does who has not laid up his treasure where moth and rust corrupt. Do you actually think that you're going to take your $140 million contract, Mr. Pujols, to the kingdom of heaven? Do you think that when your body lays moldering in the grave, that your $140,000 is going to buy you any better a casket or a pot in the ground? Or that because your ashes were worth $140,000 on the marketplace, that they're going to be any less ash worthy? Come on. The old proverb is true. You can't take it with you. What are you going to do with it? (laughs) Now, notice the passages that he quotes. Here is our author citing scripture. Why did he cite these scriptures? Okay, let's begin with, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Keep your finger in Hebrews 13. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 28. That's the one proof text in your margin that may not appear. Genesis 28, verse 15. Now, as you find that passage, who is speaking and to whom is he speaking? Anyone? God. God. God is speaking. To whom is he speaking? Jacob. Jacob. And where is Jacob? What story is this? Well, this would be a ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. Yes, this is Jacob's ladder. Okay. So, what position is Jacob in? What kind of a condition is Jacob? He's a sojourner. Look at that. The writer of Hebrews is writing this epistle to the Hebrews, to the pilgrims. He's quoting a passage about a pilgrim on his way out of the promised land to his uncle Laban. All right. Well, that's another story. But notice the passage that he uses. Okay. Now, the second proof text, which may be in your margins, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6 and verse 8. Who is speaking and to whom is he speaking? Moses. Moses is speaking. To whom is he speaking? Verse 6. Joshua. Not yet. In verse 6, he is speaking to Joshua in verse 8. I didn't give you verse 8. But in verse 6, to whom is he speaking? 
Israel. To all of Israel. Very good. Where is he speaking to all Israel? Where is the location of this speech? Where are we in Deuteronomy 30 and following? Actually, Deuteronomy 28 and following. Where are we? Where is Moses? Just about to cross over. There. They're just about to cross over. They have been on a... Soldier, another pilgrim passage. Oh boy, oh boy, this writer is giving us clues with the passage he quotes. All right, now Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Who is speaking? Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. To whom is he speaking? Art, who is speaking? God. God is speaking. To whom is he speaking? Joshua. Where are they? Where is he? Just before crossing over. There before crossing But another pilgrimage text, isn't it? All right, you pilgrims. Be content. And let your life be free from the love of money. He doesn't say let your life be free from money. There is nothing wrong with you working and earning money. As rare as that may be these days. But it is the love of that money which is the root of all evil. It is that devotion to that money which makes it an idol. Yes, we all stand in need of financial Assistance, financial, employment, etc. That is essential to our life. But to give our life to the pursuit and love of acquiring riches is to show that we are not content with what God has given us. And if we are in distress, then come to the church. Come to the brothers and sisters. Come to those that want to show brotherly love and affection to those in need. That's what the church is for. The church is to help the needy and those that don't have enough money. Not those that love money. All right. Actually, Psalm 118, which is quoted in verse 6, is also a bit of a pilgrimage psalm, insofar as in verses 19 and 20 of Psalm 118, the psalmist says, Open the gates of righteousness and let me enter in. Sounds like a guy on a journey, doesn't it? Sounds like a guy that's come up to the gates of heaven and says, I'm here, Lord. I'm at the end of my journey. I'm at the end of the trip. I'm a pilgrim that wants to enter in. All right. The texts which the author cites for this paradigm of contentment in this world, in this life, are texts which have to do with pilgrims on a journey. And a pilgrim on a journey who's looking for no continuing city here, but looking for the city which is to come. City whose builder and maker is God. The city which is the heavenly Jerusalem. That pilgrim. That pilgrim will be content. He or she will be content with what God has provided because he will never leave you nor forsake you.
you will not beg your bread because he will never leave you or forsake you. You will have enough. You will have what is sufficient for your necessities. He will not abandon you. That is his pledge to you. It does not mean that you may not have some tough times and you may not have to budget very tightly and you may have to watch your pennies. There's nothing wrong with you being industrious and also living within your means. But you won't starve. If you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not starve. And if there comes a, day, a week when you don't have enough bread on a table, that's what the deacons are for. Use the resources that God has placed at your disposal from within the brothers and sisters in the church who also care for your well-being. We love to help, particularly those who are in need. All right, so there is a common thread here, and you see it. It may not be so obvious as we come to verse 4 and verse 5, but it is here. It is consistent with this sojourn motif, this motif of God caring for his pilgrims. Now, verse 7. Remember those who led you. What's the tense of that verb led you? Okay. It's a past tense. Mary, did you have a question? Comment? I had a comment on, on five and six. Sure. Couldn't that be taken in an imagery way of the eschatological provision in that with as pilgrims we have no roots in this land and our roots are in the heavenly city and with Jacob God says I will bring you back to the land and the land is a key word referring to our inheritance eschatologically and with the Israelites in Deuteronomy he was talking about how God would put in their hearts his law and they would obey him forever and so they were at a point where they were imaging God's you know, righteousness of Christ in his people and crossing over into into the land, the eternal inheritance of God's people and then also in, in Joshua too about be strong and obey and keep my laws in other words, in other words it could be taken that God is going to provide not just the physical needs but the eternal Righteousness and inheritance and relationship and everything that is. Yes, fine. Thank you very much. That that's very appropriate to the imagery. All right, now back to seven with the past tense. Remember those who led you. What's happened to them? They passed away. They're dead. They have gone. Okay. Now, what role did they have? 
in the community. They were part of this community. They were leaders in this community. Okay? But they're dead now. He's asking them to remember them. What function did they have? What role did they take? They were ministering the word. They were preaching the word. They spoke the word of God to this community. Now, he says, considering the outcome of their life or the marginal reading, the end of their life, there's another pilgrimage theme, imitate their faith. Does this mean copycat their faith? Or does it mean to possess the very same object of faith that their faith possessed? And what was that object? Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. You see the connection between the two verses. Most of the modern commentators say verse 8 does not have any connection with this chapter whatsoever. They don't get it. Because if you're going to simply say imitation is copycat duplication, it doesn't cut it. It is not what he's talking about with that word, Greek Greek word mimesis here. He is talking about possessing the very same object of faith that those past leaders possessed. This is Hebrews 11.1 faith. It is possessing the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He wants this community to remember what those leaders possessed. And he urges them to possess it in like manner, to possess the Christ who is the same for them who are now dead as he is for you who are now living, as it is for those who are in the heavenly Jerusalem, the general assembly of the church of the, most, of the firstborn, the spirits of just men and women made perfect, and a myriad of angels... The unchanging, immutable Christ, who is the same for Abel as he is for you, who is the same for you as he is for Enoch, who is the same for you as he is for you, for you, you 2011 pilgrims. You see, there's an intimate connection between verse 7 and verse 8 because he's drawing them into the very same focus and object of faith as was the focus and object of faith of those leaders who have now passed into that heavenly city. Verse 9. And do not be carried away by strange teachings. Are they at present, as he writes this epistle, are they carried away with strange doctrine? Robert, you disagree with your wife. Your wife nodding her head for affirmation. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. You're, 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 you're neutral. I can see it's going to be a long ride home. Okay. Oh, we have our own cars tonight, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) 
No, they have not been carried away yet. So he is urging them not to be carried away. This is a future warning. Carried away with strange doctrines about foods. What on earth is he talking about? Celebrations, quote unquote celebrations. You know, um, what kind of celebration? Hanukkah. Hanukkah? Yeah. They've celebrated, they have special foods that they eat during that time. Okay. Is he talking about ceremonial or festival foods? Is he talking uh, about food offered to idols? Is this 2 Corinthians foods? No, it's not. Not sacrificial foods. It's not even festival foods. What it is, is Romans 14 foods and Hebrews 9 foods. All right, let's take a look at Romans 14 for a moment. Romans 14, verses 14 and 15. Romans 14, 14 and 15, and actually 20 fits into this as well. Paul is convinced that there is nothing unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Now this is not food offered to idols. This is unclean and clean foods. This is superstition about types of clean and unclean uh, 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 viands or uh, food objects, etc. Same thing is true in Hebrews 9.6, seeing Hebrews 9.10, I'm sorry. Now we looked at this verse uh, earlier this semester. These things relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. This is the Jewish distinction between clean and unclean meats. All right, what do we have here then in 13.9? We have this same pattern. Superstition about clean and unclean meats. Clean and unclean beverages. Now notice, in Romans 14, it's pagan. In Hebrews 9, it's Jewish. So what the writer is doing is he's covering both bases. He's saying, look, these strange doctrines or strange teachings are both pagan notions of clean and unclean meats and Jewish notions of clean and unclean meats. He's hitting both of them with the same label. What are these strange doctrines? We really don't know the details, but it has to do with superstitious use of types of beverages and types of food. It is not really festival or celebratory. It has something to do with taboos that have been placed on these things for whatever reasons. And he doesn't want them to be diverted by them. 
But he wants them to have a heart which is strengthened not by these foods, but strengthened by grace. Now this brings up the the character of the heart that he has been pleading for all through this epistle. He ends this epistle with an appeal for a heart strengthened by grace. Grace is behind the state of the heart for our author. At every point, grace is behind the state of the heart for our author. But in this epistle, he has talked about a hard heart. Like Israel's in the wilderness. Again, a pilgrimage motif. He draws the imagery from the theme of the history of redemption, which is behind the title to his letter, to the Hebrews. That hard heart in which they rejected God's promise in the wilderness. And he said they would not enter his rest. Then in chapter 3, verse 12, he says they have an evil heart of unbelief. Do not have an evil heart of unbelief. It's not only a hard heart, it's an evilly hard heart of unbelief. It's hardened in unbelief. You wouldn't believe Joshua and Caleb. Though they told you that God promised that he would overcome those giants in the land. You hardened your heart against the promises of God. And therefore he shut you out of his rest. So... The heart that is here is not this hard heart. It's not this unbelieving heart. It's the new heart. It's the new heart that comes with the new covenant in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 10 of this epistle, chapter 10, verse 16, repeats that Jeremiah 31 promise where God says he would write his law on the heart. He would write by his grace the will of his law upon the heart. And it would make you a member of his new covenant. An everlasting new covenant. And finally in chapter 10 verse 22 he talked about a true heart, a genuine heart, a sincere heart. Which was sprinkled with a cleansing from evil. A heart which was sprinkled by cleansing from evil. Surely that is by grace. And grace alone. And so he's urging their heart to be strong, not with the foods of superstition, not with the unclean and clean distinctions, not with this you know, rigmarole about these strange doctrine about eating this and not eating that, but be strengthened to feed upon the grace of God, the free grace of God, the undeserved grace of God. The unmerited grace of God to bathe your soul in the free, undeserved, unmerited grace of God, which is his Christmas gift present to you that you could never earn or deserve or buy. Though you had tens of millions of trillions of dollars, you could never buy it but to suffuse your heart and your soul and your mind in the grace of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, by the Spirit who has been poured out graciously upon your life.
Do you ever sit in the quiet of your room, perhaps even in the dark where there's no light? Do you ever sit and simply bathe your soul in the grace of Christ? Do you ever lay upon your bed in the watches of the night and think about the unfathomable depth of grace? Of Christ that looked upon you, undeserving, unworthy you, that looked upon you with favor, with a gift, with love. Do you ever bathe your soul? in grace that strengthens your soul. But then he comes to this passage in which he talks about an altar that those others have no right to eat from. This is a strange and bewildering text. We begin with the phrase, those who serve the tabernacle. Notice that this is an antithetical statement. It is an antithesis. Those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat from the altar that we have. That's an antithesis. We have it, they do not. Who are those? Who are those who serve the tabernacle? Who are they? Who are the those that he's talking about? Legalists. What what ethnic group? Broader. Broader. (laughs) Those who serve at the tabernacle. Jews. They are the Jews. They are the Jews and those who are bound by the Jewish ethos. Who are we? Christians. The antithesis here, then, between Christians and Jews. We Christians have an altar. Those Jews do not have the right to eat from it. Oh, what kind of ethos is reading this letter? Jews? No. Notice the antithesis. We, not they. The antithesis here is between Gentile converts and Jewish traditionalists, Jewish legalists, Jewish Judaizers. This verse tells you very clearly that this epistle is directed to Gentile Christian converts. Now, it is conceivable that those Gentile converts were attracted to Judaism as they learned about the Old Testament. We have made that point before. Namely, they have somehow felt that there is an attractiveness in the externalism of Old Testament Judaism. 
And so they're attracted to priesthood. They're attracted to sacrificial ritual. They're attracted to physical tabernacles. They're attracted to physical incense and all kinds of rigmarole. We've noted that. And they'd done it possibly because they wanted to escape persecution, because Judaism in the Roman Empire was a legal religion. And so they didn't want to be persecuted. And if they became kind of Jewish in their background, even though they're Christians in their profession, then they wouldn't be persecuted. They'd be exempted. That's a possibility. But nonetheless, this verse, I think, clearly indicates that that the uh, audience to whom our author is writing is an audience of uh, Gentile Christian converts and not Jews. Now, the tabernacle here obviously reminds of uh, the pilgrimage motif once again. And we've already gone over the phrases outside the camp and outside the gate and no lasting city. But I want you to notice once again another antithesis. The antithesis that is present in verse 10 is followed by a larger antithesis. Notice in verse 11. The bodies of the animals whose blood was brought into the holy holy place was burned outside the camp. But the blood of Jesus, his own blood, was was given or poured out outside the gate. Notice the antithesis. Do you see it? It is not the blood of animals. It is the blood of Jesus, which is the altar from which we feed. And once again in verse 14, notice the antithesis. We do not have a lasting city. Rather, we are looking for the city which is to come. Not that city, but this everlasting city. Now, sandwiched in between those two antitheses, the antithesis in verse 11 and 12, that is the contrast between the blood of animals and the blood of Christ, and the antithesis in 14a and 14b, that is the contrast between no lasting city here, not this, not a city here in this arena, but an everlasting city, sandwiched in between is verse 13, where the pilgrim goes bearing the reproach of Christ. What, what is the heart of the antithesis? The heart of the antithesis is holding the value, holding the benefit, holding the efficacy of the blood of Christ and traveling to an everlasting city with the reproach of your Savior. You're centered, you're focused. You sandwich the reproach, which is the central focus of your life. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the cross of Christ. More pilgrim imagery. Not imitation, but identification. Christ bore his reproach for us. We bear the reproach for him. This is union with Christ language. This is mystical union by grace through faith in the wonderful blood of Christ. The eschatological pilgrim bore his reproach. We, the semi eschatological pilgrims, bear his reproach in his place. Now, <clears throat> these shorter antitheses 
are part of a much broader antithesis yet. That is, a large antithesis which <clears throat> brackets verses 10 and 11, verse, verse 15 and 16. What is at stake in 10 and 11? It is a way of worship. It is a way of approaching God. What is at stake in verses 15 and 16? It is a way of worship. It is a way of approaching God. Not the way of worship in which that altar does not benefit, verses 10 and 11. But this way of worship, verses 15 and 16, where the altar of the sacrifice of the fruit of the lips, the sacrifice of sharing and doing good, the sacrifices which are pleasing to God. Notice, that which does not please him, because it is not the altar from which we feed. It is not the worship which is directed towards him. Verses 10 and 11, not that sacrificial altar, but this sacrificial altar, verses 15 and 16, notice the word sacrifice is used twice in those two verses. Once in 15 and once in 16. This is a contrast or comparison between two styles of worship. A type of worship in which we bear the reproach of Christ. A type of worship in which we go outside the camp with him. A type of worship which seeks the city which is to come. A type of worship which is eschatological worship. Worship which possesses Jesus Christ the same for these Hebrews of yesterday. Jesus Christ the same for you Hebrews of today. Jesus Christ the same for all Hebrews forever. That is the worship that God seeks. That is the worship of the fruit of the lips which give thanks. That is the worship that continually offers up praise unto God. That is the worship that does not neglect doing good and sharing. That is the worship which is pleasing unto God. Not the worship of that altar from that tabernacle. You've seen the contrast here. The antithetical contrasts. They are, they are bound into this pilgrim soldier. We cannot go back to the blood of animals. We cannot go back to that tabernacle and that altar of those priests. We cannot go back to that city which lays in ashes at the foot of Mount Zion. We go on. We go on to the city of the great king, the city eternal in the heavens. We go on to Jesus and the spirits of just men made perfect. Verse 17. What leaders is he talking about now? He's talking about the leaders which are contrasted with the leaders in verse 7. The present leaders, not the past ones. Does he include himself in with those leaders? Verse 18, pray for us. He is among the leaders. Verse 19, is he with them in leadership? He is not. He has been absent from them. He's praying to be restored to them. He once was one of their leaders. For some reason, he was taken away. 
but he is longing to be restored. And now verse 20 and 21. The God of peace who brought from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Are these two verses a prayer? He says in verse 18, pray for us. Is he then praying for them? Or is verse 20 and 21 a doxology? Notice in verse 21, he says, to whom be glory forever. The Greek word is doxa. That's a doxology. Is verse 20 and 21 a doxology? Or look at what it, look what ends the verse in 21. Amen. Is it a, is it a benediction? Is it a prayer? Is it a doxology? Is it a benediction? Is it all of the above? I leave it for your enrichment. Take your choice. Whatever it is, it is a benedictory doxological prayer. But it is a revelation. Verses 20 and 21 are a revelation of the pilgrim's end, his journey's end. Peace, peace at the end of the pilgrim sojourn. Peace in the God of peace. Peace through the God of peace. God in whose presence, God who in face-to-face presence is everlasting peace. And at the journey's end, the pilgrim finds the pastor. He finds the perfect Shepherd of the sheep. The Latin word for shepherd is pastor. The flock of sheep of this shepherd, this great shepherd, at rest in peace before the face of God and the risen Lord Jesus. Journey's end at the feet of the great shepherd, risen from dead. And the perfect benefit at journey's end is the blood of an eternal covenant, an eternal covenant bond. A bond binding you, sealing you, you and every Hebrew pilgrim by faith. A blood bond, precious bond of blood once and for all, atoning for all your sin, perfecting and perfectly covering every one 
of your sins, a blood of the covenant that perfectly satisfies for every sin of your pilgrimage. And then, grace upon grace, the effusion of his glory, an eternal glory of an eternal person and an eternal dimension, a glory which, as Gerhardus Voss notes, is not only endless in duration, everlasting without time, but a glory which is absolute, eternal, and everlasting in participation, in possession, in experiencing the realities of eternity, experiencing the reality of God the Father, experiencing the reality of God the Son, experiencing the reality of God the Holy Spirit and a myriad of angels and a great cloud of witnesses and the pilgrims of the former age, the age in between and the age to come, pilgrim Hebrews by grace through faith in every age through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's your pilgrim prayer. That's your pilgrim benediction. That's your pilgrim doxology. And all God's people said, Amen. Any questions or comments you may have? You've completed the epistle of the pilgrims. Is the epistle of your pilgrimage. Journey on in faith, dear pilgrim brothers and sisters in Christ.